Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Occasionalist. It's Adam Chembalewski with the one and only Matthew Pagel. How are we doing today, bro? I am doing really great, and I am very, very excited to dive into this week's movie. This is an excellent choice. Yeah, I'm very, very happy about it, too, man. Like, oh, God, I'm just I'm really excited. The movie that we're going to be talking about today is The Lost Boys from 1987. And oh, my God, I just got so many thoughts. We'll save all that as we can get into further into the podcast. And actually, like I was going to start up with a little bit of a follow up from last week, but I was starting some of the movies that we had talked about and everything like Scanners and um, Processor and Kronos and everything. But I did not get around to watching them because I've been in the Halloween ends hole for like the last like four or five days. So easily people, one of the most divisive Halloween movies, um, just go out and check it out. Like, I don't want to get into any much further about it because it could just been off into a major tangent. But if you haven't seen Halloween ends, um, it's definitely worth it. And it's so different. And I don't even know how I feel about it yet, but, um, it is out there and it really kind of did a number on me. I've listened to so many podcasts and watched so many or listened to watched it a couple of times, watched some interviews and everything. And it kind of sucked the thunder out of any follow-up from last week that I was going to do for this episode. So sorry about that. I had written that down in the outline and I was like kind of planning on talking about some of the stuff we, movies we had talked about last week, but I just, I just did not get around to it. <laughs> oh, that, that's totally fine. And if you're like me um, and you haven't seen a Halloween movie in 20 some years, you don't need to bother. Yeah, no, I totally got you on that one. This is one that um, if you're out of the franchise, this is not a, the one to go back in. I'll put it to you that way. <laughs> I, I, the last, I mean, I watched the, I've seen the, I saw the David Gordon Green one, so I take that back. One in the last 20 years. It was, Halloween H2O was where I was just like, you know what, I don't think I need to be a part of this franchise anymore. Yeah, I don't blame you for dropping out after that one either. I really, really, really do not. So, all right. So we're going to be getting into The Lost Boys. 1987, 80s vampire, horror, sex, all that kind of stuff. Directed by Joel Schumacher. The writers were Jan Fisher, James Jeremias were the original writers because this started off as a completely different movie when Richard Donner was hired on to kind of helm and take a hold of the project. It was actually going to be a lot of like younger kids, like the Frog Brothers were going to be Cub Scouts. Everybody was Mm -hmm. going to be much younger. Then when Joel Schumacher gets a hold of it, he decides that, nope, we're going to make some changes. So he brings in this guy named Jeffrey Bohm to take care of the screenplay, who was um, made a name for himself over the years by writing films like Lethal Weapon 2, Lethal Weapon 3, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and also The Dead Zone. And uh, one completely one that should go, um, that should definitely be mentioned here. He wrote the 1996 The Phantom starring Billy Zane, which um, as a kid, I kind of liked that. I kind of liked that stupid movie. I remember seeing it in the theater. So the movie um, The Lost Boys stars uh, Jason Patrick, who um, is Jackie Gleason's grandson, which I did not learn until this week during uh, during just in doing my initial research. Is it correct? But isn't it isn't he his? Uh, isn't it like um? Is is it his mother Jackie Gleason's daughter? Oh, that is a good question. Um, give me a second here, and I could tell you that. Let's see here. On the first paragraph of Wikipedia, his father is the actor playwright Jason Miller, who was the priest in The Exorcist, and it says his maternal grandfather. Yeah, it was Jackie. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I knew that. I just couldn't remember which line it followed, but I, I thought it was his mother. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, you bet. So I, that was a really interesting kind of thing. Just kind of hit me out of nowhere. I hadn't thought about Jackie Gleason in a very long time. Um, so it's him. Diane Weiss is in the movie. We get both of the Corys, Haim and Feldman, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, Jamie Gertz. I mean, there, this has got a lot of good people. There's a lot of names here that mm-hmm. you know are recognizable. People went on to have a lot of uh, careers following the movie. On a budget of $8.5 million, brought in 32.3. So so this was definitely a success yep. and um, I could completely understand why <laughs> that be, be, being one of the most 1980s movies practically ever uh, made in terms of horror and maybe even movies in general. So, um, so as we get into everything, just have a couple opening questions here. So the lost boys is the, it's the fourth movie from Joel Schumacher's 23 director credits for feature films. How would you describe the legacy of Joel Schumacher as a filmmaker? Uh, Joel, Joel Schumacher has a great eye for talent. I mean, like his sort of the, uh, I mean, some of the movies are obvious, like, you know, you get to the nineties, like the Batman movies, like it was like a no brainer getting like George Clooney in those movies. But, um, in terms of sort of like, you know, discovering younger stars and like putting younger stars in his movies, like he's got an unparalleled uh, eye for talent, but someone that clearly emphasizes fun and flare over the substance of whatever he's making. <laughs> right. There's I mean, definitely- very much. If that was his, if there was a flaw in his filmmaking, that's what it is. There's a lot of there's a lot of sizzle, um, but but not a lot of substance behind it. No, I can completely agree with you on that. There's definitely a lot of fun. There's a lot of bright stuff. And when it comes to the Batman movies, a completely in a different like world than the Batman movies we've had in the last 20 years. Everything is a lot of bright, a lot of brightness, a lot of fun. And you're right. There's not a lot of substance there, which we'll get into, you know, with some of the characters and stuff, specifically yes. with the Lost Boys and everything. Yes. And yeah, I could not agree with you more on that. And like, I, you know, like I kind of viewed him as one of these dudes that um, this is a guy who's going to be remembered for basically having a very very vast and diverse filmography and you know like we talk about it a lot and it's definitely talked about a lot you know with the, the kind of this like fixation on our tour tours and everything and you know it's it's definitely fun to like talk about these guys you know their signature styles maybe their any kind of unusual behavior that they might have mm-hmm. but like a lot of people in Hollywood like are, are basically dudes like Joel Schumacher. I mean, he's yeah. done everything from like eighties, you know, comedy movies, horror stuff, uh, the, the number 23, eight millimeter. He's got superhero movies in there. So this is like, you know, I mean, not it's, just the, the phrase here may be a little just different than how people usually use it, but this is like a regular, like working man's director here, you know, like somebody who not necessarily like worked into like a specific genre, but could, you know, literally get hired on to do just, just about anything. And, and yes, absolutely. And a big part of that is that he was, he was renowned. We should talk about it in the past tense. He died like two, three years ago, whatever. Um, right. uh, you know, we should, we should, he was renowned for, getting movies on budget uh, under budget and on time so mm-hmm. you go ahead and any you know like any studio will take a movie that costs less and gets finished ahead of schedule than letting you know than letting some you know super genius blow a budget way out of proportion and take two years to shoot a movie so right. part of it i mean it's not that joel schumacher isn't a good wasn't a good filmmaker but a big part of why he has such a diverse you know, list of credits is because studios were like, bring Schumacher in. It's not going to cost, it's not going to cost more than if, you know, if we have a budget of $60 million, it's going to cost $60 million and it's going to be done in nine months. Like we we know that that's going to happen. 
Right, exactly. And like for people that, you know, hear just hear the name Joel Schumacher and maybe immediately go to some of the negative connotations that have been assigned to his two Batman movies, like in, you know, throughout the court, ever, basically ever since the Nolan took, Nolan took over. Um, like you see that this guy's got a lot of really good stuff, like in his filmography and everything. And I'm even surprised that I, I actually, my mom, my mom and I went to see um, his version of the Phantom of the Opera, like um, a long time ago when, um, when it came out. And I remembered like enjoying that and stuff. I, kind of sort of enjoyed the number 23 I and mean, I thought it was like a cool premise and everything but it wasn't necessarily like the best movie out there and god knows I'm probably not going to have the same reaction to it today because I can't stand people that do that kind of number 23 shit but um but yeah like I'm I'm even surprised as to how much of his filmography I enjoy um especially with all the negative connotations around the Batman and everything yeah for so, sure for sure Definitely. So like I, I found this quote from him. I thought this was great. He says, vampires are hot. They're the only erotic monster. Frankenstein is not hot. So I, I got a kick out of this. So I just want to ask you, like, is there another movie monster that's hot or is he is Joel Schumacher right on this one? Well, so two things here. One, vampires are people. So right. like there's that. Um, I guess you're, you're really your next closest are sort of like Frankenstein is. But he's like an amalgamation of people. Um Wolfman is in fact a person, but like obviously, like that's not you know he's he's only part part of the time is he a monster. Um, so there's that. So like I mean that's that feels like it's like that feels like it's a layup. But it's okay, I gotcha. Also very important to remember that Joel Schumacher was a sex fiend, and he would have 100% fucked a vampire, a werewolf, Frankenstein, the creature from the Black Lagoon, fuck anything. He had, was reported to have like over like 30,000 sexual partners. Um, he was a fucking pervert. So when you hear something like this come from Joel Schumacher, just remember that he would have fucked a vampire. Yeah. Oh, I got you on that one. Yeah, I saw on Wikipedia he put up some a pretty impressive uh, body count there in terms of the numbers and everything like that. So yeah, sex was He's not like, discriminating. Front, front, They're not discriminating. There's a reason why Batman had nipples when he was directing it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you you definitely got that one right, dude. Yeah. The bad nip thing is uh, something that is burned into my mind forever on that one. Yeah. So now let's get into like a little bit of the story here. And I wrote this question, this first one, before I actually watched the movie, because I was I was actually surprised to hear Wikipedia throw this black comedy tag on their um, description of the movie, which it labels as a supernatural black comedy horror film. Now, I feel that the supernatural and the horror elements are easily identified. But are you like, what do you feel about the movie? Would you consider to be a black comedy? Uh, well, I mean, there's four characters. There's four different characters that are bringing the comedy. You have the Frog Brothers, uh, Sam and Grandpa are your are your comedic characters. The I mean, they really exist only for comedy's sake. The 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 problem is is that, and we'll get to this because this is this is again. I I really enjoyed this movie, but this is like a movie that has some serious like bumps in it that like need to be smoothed out. And mm -hmm. the one big bump that they need, that they would need to smooth out is the fact that there are two separate movies happening in this movie. Um, and one is much funnier than the other one. Um, the frog brothers and Sam and grandpa, that movie is a very funny movie. The, the movie with Michael going through this, like, this teen angst, um, you know, potential like murder, you know, potentially becoming a murderer subplot like kind of deal. That's a whole separate movie. We have two different movies happening at the same time. One is a black comedy and one is not. 
Right. Yeah. Like I see and I got a lot of humor and I even rewatching it. There were some lines in there that I thought were absolutely hysterical. It just didn't register with like the way a typical like black kind of comedy is to me. Like, you know, a lot of the humor seemed to come from like one liners or maybe somebody getting stuff splashed on them. It wasn't like necessarily a black comedy um, in the sense where you're like you're focusing in on something that like it's a like a dark subject matter but trying to make some humor out of it like it feels like these jokes could be almost like in any kind of vampire movie and still like it'd be funny it wasn't necessarily what i consider to be black comedy i guess uh that's just your definition yeah yeah no i got you trust me this is a black comedy gotcha so like other aside from all the vampire element what would you say that the story is about it, this is this is actually um, a little bit deeper maybe than a, a lot of people think. And I don't think it's like, we're not talking like, uh, we're not getting to like some like philosophical treatise here. But there's definitely a little bit more here than like first, at first blush. And that's like, really this is like a, a, a it, overall, the, this movie is about the idea of how families are, are changing in, in the, what would, you know, in obviously the 1980s, but like. In the modern era, as we mentioned before, the mm-hmm. 1980s really start like what becomes our modern, our current modern era, and it's about like how families are changing from what you know the, the typical 1950s nuclear family. That idea is really rapidly changing in the 1980s, and so we have that one sort of idea about like the the, the family unit changing, but two diverging ideas about what even constitutes a family um, mm-hmm. between the Emersons and the the, the titular Lost Boys. You know, the Emersons are one type of modern family. You know, you have a divorced mother with her kids and living, you know, she's living with her father, their grandfather. And the Lost Boys are another type of family. No blood relation, no mother, single father. So, Mm -hmm. like, both types of families challenge a much more conservative view of what a family is, how they function, you know, that kind of stuff. And sort of to kind of drive the point home a little bit more... The the most sort of like conservative um, ideal of a family man, um, it, Max in this case, played by the late great Edward Herman. Um, Max is definitely a commentary on uh, on like the conservative ideal for what a family man is. Right, successful mm-hmm. business owner. He's very polite. He's much more a version of a conservative nineteen eighties dad. But it turns out that also he's the biggest monster in the movie. So like, so there is definitely like a commentary on on that as well. Yeah. And see, I had this whole thing with an exploration into the family as well. And like, you're right, like he is by far and away, like the, the, you know, the, pro, the model of like the conservative, like family man and everything. And he's so like, so in his ways that like this whole thing was just this plot to, to like get Lucy and stuff like that. This whole thing with them getting Michael and Sam to be converted by the Lost Boys, like, you know, Michael first and Sam eventually in time mm-hmm. was just this whole way to uh, in some kind of weird, unusual, like courtship and everything like that. And like, whether she wants it or not, like, this is like his plan. Like it it just doesn't matter. Like you're basically going to do like whatever I say. And that is by far, like that is by far and away a representation of like the male's role in the household, Mm -hmm. um, you know, prior to the evolution of like the, the modern family and everything like that for sure. And like, you're right. It's this, um, you know, it's this take where you have this like, 
uh, divorced family, a family coming from a broken home, trying to merge together with another like sort of broken. I don't even know if, you'd, if it was ever like a home to be broken, but another mm-hmm. version of like this unusual kind of family. And it's, you know, the families did not end up coming together in the end, but that's strictly because like if we would have there would have and the movie would have ended on a really shitty and kind of not uh, not fun note. You know what I'm saying? So right, this right. whole this whole commentary with the movie and, and and families in general and the evolution of families is 100 percent on point here. And this might be like some of the more better better things of substance in terms of comment commentary that we get on the movie. Cause I just, I am some doing some of the podcasting and listening research that I've done. There are a lot of very interesting theories as to what um, this movie is about and everything, but I believe the family angle to be um, number one, true, but also number two, like the most, the most depth and the most substance out of, out of all everything you could take out of this movie. For sure. I think you could, I think you could go through some other ideas, but like that's, that's clearly at the forefront. If it, if they wanted to go dive into some other stuff, um, I don't think they would have. I think they would have aged everyone up even more. That these would have been more like adults dealing with I this you. kind of shit if they didn't want to do a. Fan, you know what I mean? Like, right. You make Michael more like in his mid twenties. Sam, you know, nineteen twenty, whatever. Um, like, then you would age them out of being kids altogether. No, definitely, dude, definitely. And you're right, by making them younger, it is by far and away a much better way to give the presentation of a, of a, of a theme of family, like a, a substance of family all the way. It's more believable to the audience and stuff. Because like, I think once you start to get everybody into a higher age bracket, it's a little bit more difficult to care because everybody is adults. They can kind of sort of do their own thing. Mm -hmm. There's just not as much stake in that as there was in this particular storyline that they should have decided to go with. Right. Hell yeah, man. So like in both of the movies that we watched this month, like I noticed that the closing credits like come almost immediately after we get some kind of resolution, like after the, the monster is shot, the bad guys are defeated, even in like the same scene almost we go right away into the credits so i wanted to ask you like do any like now that because we've seen a bunch of like you know movies that are made in modern times we've had 20 years of like modern filmmaking do these movies like feel did the endings feel like abrupt to you in any way not really no i mean it, and it's just because that's how movies were for about 40 50 years yeah, like I see for me, I actually thought it was great. And I was like, more movies should end like this. And I was just thinking about this question from like the perspective of somebody who is who is younger than us that maybe was born in like the, the later 90s and the 2000s. Like if they were to watch these movies, if they would just be like, oh, my God, could you believe these movies just ended? Like they didn't have three or four other scenes after the, the defeat of the bad guy. So like I'm I'm wondering like if people who are younger than us would view the ending of these movies differently. I, I don't even think you have to ask people that are younger, quote unquote. I mean, certainly younger would be, would be easier, but just people who don't watch old movies. Just, mm-hmm. it doesn't even, like, I know people who don't watch that many movies, period. Um, ask people who don't watch old movies about what their experience would be watching one of these. Watch, I mean, have them watch something from like the 50s or 60s when the credits are literally coming on screen while they're in the last scene. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. And like, God, like the movies even back then, like which was the Fast and the Furious movie that we watched was like 110. When those movies get to be like 120, 130 minutes, I can only imagine how they would view those types of movies mm-hmm. and stuff for sure. Yeah, dude, definitely. So moving into the soundtrack now, like I, I didn't really know how to approach this particular subject. So I just wanted us to do a one positive and one negative thing about the soundtrack. So give it give me your positive thing first. I, you know, positive was the fact that it was just like all of the, mu- the, the well, all of the music drops seemed very well placed, um, mm-hmm. no matter what it was. I know we heard that like L.A. Gun song twice, I believe, um, during um, Star and Michael's sex scene, but also I think it opens the movie as well. Is that the same song? It's the uh, Cry Little Sister by George McMahon, right? Right, but it's L.A. Guns. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cover gotcha. Yes. We hear that twice. Yes. It is yeah. the song in the beginning and then during the love scene. Correct. Yeah. So like the music drops were just like well-timed throughout. I mean, that that's like, that was excellent. I don't really have any negatives, but what I will say is there were a lot of music drops. Um, <laughs> I think between, I, I can't, I, I remember like thinking, thinking this, but like between up and basically up until when Michael and Star have sex and about like 10 to 15 minutes prior to that. There's like four music drops in like a 20 minute segment, which is a lot. (laughs) Yeah, they really, really dropped in a ton of fucking ton of music um, on us and stuff. And even the um, the big kind of like dirt bike race scene with um, Michael and the rest of the Lost Boys and Mm -hmm. everything when he first kind of leaves the boardwalk with them. That was a pretty long fucking music drop, too. Like I I just expected like. Just a quick little, you know, maybe like a couple opening riffs to maybe like a chorus or something like that. But we were in that for a very, very, very long time. And yeah, dude, a lot of fucking music drops in the movie for sure. My my positive thing that I took away from um, the soundtrack, the use of those children chanting the Ten Commandments is fucking haunting as hell. My God, there's like this is some of the stuff that like even when I saw it as a kid, I would just remember, like, as far as a music score goes, it being unbelievably creepy. Like, there, I don't know if there's anything to me that just sounds – children's choir music could be very inspiring or it could be very, very, like, kind of dark and creepy depending on how you use it, which I guess is most music. But um, this one in particular – just really resonated with me, man. And like the, when I first heard that, um, during the, the shots going over the ocean and leading up to the boardwalk in the beginning, dude, that I was just like taken right back to my childhood. And I was like, I was like legitimately like creeped out, like hairs started to like rise up off of the arm and everything. Cause I just, that was one thing from when I was younger that really, really creeped me out. So I got to give them props for finding the use of that and doing it in a really, really, really good way. Mm-hmm. Like any kind of negatives that I would say about the soundtrack, I, I don't necessarily agree with um, people are strange being the song to go it's, off of it's the, pretty the on the nose it is yeah it definitely is and the other thing too i'm in general i'm only so so on the doors i used to be a bigger doors fan when i was younger but as i've gotten older it's, it's just not quite what it used to be i i have i have an appreciation for what the doors meant to music while also thinking that they're completely overrated. <laughs> right, right. And there's a lot of stuff in there that is extremely overrated. And the 
the choice for this one, I think like it's kind of the on the nose element of it. And just the fact that this isn't even one of my favorite door songs, it just, it, it kind of felt like a little flat to me. And the fact that we had to hear it twice between um, the, the kind of like the, the family driving around and getting the introduction to Santa Carla. And then that little bit in the, the closing credits, I thought was just a little excessive. Like, I think they went a little bit too hard on a song that shouldn't have even have been covered in the, the first place and everything. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, and it doesn't upon like hindsight, it doesn't really fit quite as well as I, I think they thought it did when they, when they were adding music. It, yeah, like people are strange, blah blah blah. But like, the everyone in this movie is sort of like eclectic. So, like, I, yeah, I get it, but it just feels like it feels like we're. I think it would be a much more interesting sort of musical choice if more people were like straight edged in this movie, and there were oh, I gotcha. less eclectic people. Like when when they do when we're getting shots of the boardwalk and stuff. There's a lot of screwwally people wandering around the boardwalk in Santa Carla, which is just Santa Cruz. Um, but there's a lot of kind of screwbally people. So like you kind of get like the idea that this place is very eclectic anyway. So I feel like the music drop would have made more that music cue would have made much more sense if we were in a much more suburban sterile environment. Yeah, like some contrast. There. Yeah. Like exactly. It's almost like you're saying you're showing us that these people are strange and also letting us know via the form of a song that's playing over this footage right. and stuff like right. that, you know, like part of me originally went to like, cause there is this mural of Jim Morrison that's hanging in the lost boys hideout. So I, I kind of maybe thought that they were trying to make some kind of statement on, on youth or whatever, but I don't really know without like really sounding too complicated. I don't really know how that kind of metaphor would transition smoothly. Like, sure. Like, Everybody like Jim Morrison had died really, really young, but isn't that that's the opposite of what the movie's all about and calling it the Lost Boys and everything. I mean, we I guess people will forever the image of a young Jim Morrison will forever live on because we never really got to see him get old. But I think that that's that I just don't think that that's like um I feel that that's almost like a little bit too much in like the wrong direction for it to be like the explanation behind all the door stuff. I'm sure it was just a set designer like the doors. That can easily <laughs> like, be. Yeah. I mean, like, seriously, there's a lot of that kind of stuff when, when you like, I, I can't remember what movie it is. There's a movie where there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like logos for certain things for like companies and things on the walls or something. And I, like, I remember this being like a pretty famous, like people like, analyzing like the logos like the company logos to death why did they use this why did they use that and it was like a set designer was just like i don't know i just found a bunch of these so i stuck them on the fucking walls like <laughs> the the director asked me to stick some shit in the wall so i did right right and yeah like this could easily be one of those cases and stuff it was just like between the song and the, that that image and the like i just felt that there may be something more to it but i Anything that I would possibly come up with is just way too complicated than beyond, hey, somebody buddy like the Doors thought it looked cool. I'm sure there is some kind of statement or something in the music or Jim Morrison's words that may be applicable to the Lost Boys lifestyle and all that stuff. But I, I just I don't I'm not familiar with the, the Doors enough to get that. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. 
Hell yeah, man. So let's move into the characters now. So with the, we're going to start off with the humans. And do you feel that the characters of Mike and Sam were presented to the audience with clear motivations and stakes? No, and that's one of the main problems with this movie um, that makes it very bumpy. The kids that you're placing at the very center of it don't really have much beyond getting laid and like hanging out. Which is kind of a problem. Like we need we need them to have a little bit more of like, hey, we're trying to fit in. Um, you know, like if this would be one of those things where like if you just because I think it's supposed to be like the very end of the summer, right? When they move to Santa Carla. Yeah, school starting up soon. Yeah, supposedly. Yeah. So let's just call it like it's you know beginning of August or somewhere around there. It had they moved in and this was like the week before school or the week of school starting, that immediately would give both Sam and Michael like something to sort of, hey, we're trying to fit in with the people here. We're trying to make our, you know what I mean? Like it would right. just be, it would, would it be cliche? Absolutely. But it would be a very like convenient way to give them sort of more stakes and also to give like kind of show how they're meshing with the town other than like going out at night unsupervised, which... <laughs> children out there that was a thing back in the 80s your parents just let you go do whatever the fuck you felt like <laughs> right yeah no one cared about us back nope. in the day that's right that's right yeah dude i felt the exact same way and like i i think that like you and i um having seen this movie before watching the amount of entertainment movies and television that we do i think like you and i could kind of sort of grasp that like it may be a goal for them at some point in time down the road to fit in with people there just mm -hmm. because of the whole like new family right. or family moving to a new town premise of the of the story but there's never anything that's really like presented clearly and like when you um when you talk about like the just the overall floor of the flow of the story in general like michael doesn't meet his like tangible object of desire goal would start like, you know, I can buy the whole like guy getting the girl story, but we don't get that till much later on in the story than one would normally get mm -hmm. that, that setup and everything. And then when it comes to Sam, I'll be honest with you. Like, I'm not really entirely sure what he wants until, um, until Michael is starting to transform into a vampire. Right. And then his goal just be kind of comes to, to save his brother and everything. Once again, a very, very easy, very believable story that anyone could get behind the idea of a younger man wanting to like save his brother and stuff from, from something. But we don't get that till much later on. And we were probably looking in somewhere in the middle or of act, two maybe even maybe not even until the act three even for all i know so cause, right because kiefer with the fangs the first shot of kiefer sutherland with the fangs take comes in at about 60 minutes into the movie i, I was gonna say I think, I think it's about i was gonna say about an about an hour in roughly speaking yeah so like sam's whole like drive to save his brother wouldn't really kick in until act three and stuff because he was still you know when michael was changing Sam wasn't necessarily gung-ho about saving him. He was more or less trying to save his own life and not right. be, you know, turn into a vampire buffet. But the whole, like, um, the whole goal of the, of him is like, we don't get it till much later on, which like, it, it really like leads me to the question here is like, who is the actual like protagonist of the movie? Like I, I if, if I'm looking at everything, you know, like in, in terms of how you would look at a story, like I would have to think that maybe Sam has got a little bit more of an argument to make for him being the pro the, the protagonist, 
but like I, I I don't even know if I'm comfortable with that because it's there's not there's nothing there's not a lot of clarity there in terms of like who would be your definitive protagonist. You're absolutely right. You could you could make as much of an argument for Michael and Sam as you could for Lucy having yeah. being the protagonist. It's just like she just doesn't get enough screen time. Um, to uh, I shouldn't say she doesn't get enough. She just doesn't get enough like sort of critical screen time. Basically, like her right. story is on the periphery until like the very end, when when it kind of comes full circle as to you know to why how you could sort of paint her as the protagonist. You know, Max has been stalking. You know, Max is really mm-hmm. the goal is to get her um, you know in the fold as like the as the as her as his boy's mother as he says. Um, so like it, but it, so that takes you know we get sprinklings of it, but that takes literally the entire movie for us to come yeah. back around to. Uh, so it, it is it is very interesting that like the the vampires have the most clear st- pun fully intended here have the most obvious stakes and mm-hmm. and, and obvious motivation but like they really don't even need it. Um, <laughs> we needed Mike, uh, Sam and Lucy to have more of the clear motivation here. Yeah, exactly. Like they really don't need like their motivation is basically the head vampire told us to do this kind of right. stuff, you know, and like if Max's overall motivation is to like you know, just like get laid or whatever to have a relationship like that is might be the clearest motivation out of any of the, the characters in general. And like if we're talking about the stakes, like. Yeah, like, I, I guess, like, okay, like, Michael must become a regular human again, so he doesn't become a vampire. Believable stakes, but th- th- those stakes that aren't in everything aren't introduced until much, much later on and everything mm-hmm. like that, you know? And there might there kind of even seems to be a point in time where Michael might even be okay with some of the stuff once he just learns how to get a hold of, get control of himself. So, right. Like I don't, I don't necessarily feel that like the stakes were presented to the audience at all, and um, I at all in the in the time that they would normally be presented to the audiences, which is in the first act, mm-hmm. and we kind of have to fill in some of the stakes and all that as we go, which it's just really different. Um, it, it's really different even for movies from the eighties, like even yeah. in, in the running man in uh, red dawn, we knew what these people needed to do. We knew the stakes right the fuck away. Yep. In this one, the, this, when we find out about the stakes is like a hundred percent debatable. <laughs> so it's yeah. a really, a really different, um, a really different way of, of storytelling. It, and this is like, kind of goes back to like what you're saying here where there's definitely like a whole ton of sizzle but like in terms of the actual stake and substance this is definitely a category where the the movie lacks for sure Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and you know and it's and like i was thinking well we're gonna get to this question a little bit later but like i I was thinking about like a, a modern version of this film like if if you left everything in and then the modern version, you know, a more modern writer writers and director were to sort of fill in the blanks, this would be a fucking three hour movie. To, oh, God, yeah. To get everything in and sort of make the stakes clear, give characters motivation, fill out characters. This would be a near three hour movie. It would literally double in length. Oh, without a doubt, dude. Like to flesh everybody out and stuff, because the... um the vampires we know like really nothing about nothing. you know nothing about them whatsoever which is um, which is kind of okay but yeah yeah it, it's definitely like it is kind of okay you know and i will tell you like as a viewer i 
I took and I was okay. And this may not be the case, but it just in terms of giving them some backstory, if the vampires were alive during the 1906 earthquake that, you know, shoved the resort that was built on a fault into the caves. Right. Like I would take that two or three sentence explanation as, as a, okay, well maybe they were at least alive in 1906 or something like that, you know, okay. So somebody was alive at least back right. then. And, uh, but we don't, we don't know how long they've been around. Like we don't know really much about them. And like for them, it, it kind of works and stuff like that. Like would I take some more fleshing out of, I'd take some more fleshing out of David and Max 110%. But, um, you know, for us to properly flesh out all the other characters, like, and factoring all the time and stuff, you're definitely looking at an over three hour movie and stuff. And I heard on one of the podcasts that I was listening to, and I, I thought this would have been a cool addition is that the end of the movie was like supposed to have a, kind of shining type ending where um, we maybe see like a photo or there's a mural back in the, the cave of Max and the vampires from like another time and stuff like that. So even if they maybe would have did something like that, it would have been okay. But um, I like, but, we, we, but you know, we just didn't get to it and stuff like that, which is, you know, I, which I guess is fine. Like, I just, yeah. I guess I would have appreciated a little bit more fleshing out, but it's not like fleshing out the bad guys was, so necessary in this particular movie yeah exactly it, it not totally necessary but would have helped a lot um but certainly your main characters needed some fleshing out what they what they could have done and they and they kind of did with um the little kid laddie um they had like he was on a milk carton in right. uh, in one of the scenes and i think if i'm remembering the date he's been missing for a few months at this point mm-hmm. i think i think like two months um it would have been kind of interesting if in the, you know, like if um, Michael's like discovery, like in the cave, like I kind of mentioned, like there's an ending of a shining type of ending, which would have been kind of interesting if maybe there were like missing people flyers and like he saw, you know, Alex yeah. Hunter from like yeah. 1960s or something in there. Yeah. I, you know, I thought maybe with all the missing persons flyers that we saw, maybe I would catch one of them for being one of the, the vampire gang, but there wasn't, there wasn't even that the security right. guard that they killed got a missing flyer, yep. but, but the vampires themselves did not. Yeah. So, but um, that is, that is just something I thought actually, like I would have taken that too. I think that that would have worked awesomely, actually just a little shot of one of the missing flyers for, for them, or even like a, who knows even like an older sign from like the civil war days or something like something, that. Something. Yeah. Know, just, just laying around or whatever. But so. but you're right. I think, I think because you and I sort of pick up on these cues when, when David's talking about the 1906 earthquake, I immediately went like, okay, so they've been there at least for the past 80 years. Basically. Yeah. And, and I'll take and I'll take that. That was yep. good enough for, for me at the time, for mm-hmm. sure. So with um with the Lost Boys, with Michael from the Lost Boys and Seth from the Fly, they both undergo a transformation in their story. Aside from what they transform into, what would you say is the main difference between each of their transformations? So it's it's interesting because they have a lot of parallels, despite obviously not not being that parallel to one another. Um, they're both kind of voluntary. Right, like Seth didn't have to get into the telepod. Um, Michael didn't have to drink David's blood. Um, so they're both kind of voluntary. They both are kind of simultaneously intrigued by what's going on, but also clearly do not want to like see the end of it. Um, right. See the end of the transformation. Um, but obviously, we we get and and even we actually even get sort of. Um, um, there's even like sort of obviously we get the light at the end of the tunnel with Michael, but there's even the possibility 
is presented in the fly that Seth might be able to undo um, mm-hmm. what's been done to him. Although it more than likely just based on like, if there was a movie, if there was a Cronenberg movie in which, um, uh, in which Seth and Veronica do get into the telepods, it does not end well. Like it's right. It, that, that, that movie doesn't end pretty at all. So <laughs> while there is a possibility of it sort of being undone, I, I do think that like, the main difference here is that Michael's have my, there are rules for Michael's that that set him up to you know be saved, and the likelihood is that Seth Seth's ideas would not have worked. Nothing nothing was going to undo like wh- how far down the path that he's gotten. Oh yeah, definitely, dude. Like yeah, there was. You're right. There was maybe some type of inclination that Seth could get out of it, but there was no way in hell that with that telepod scene at the end of that movie was going to go smoothly in any way, shape or form, right. you know? And like the idea of the transformation being both voluntary. Yeah. I completely hear what you're saying on this one and stuff like that. Like, you know, no one forced them to really do any of it. The motivations behind it are a little bit different. Like I think, you know, M- Michael wanting to fit in, mm-hmm. While like Seth having this like you know kind of hidden mad scientist side that um, you yes. know prompts him to go in and do it, so they do it for entirely different reasons. Mm-hmm. And because of like, and this is just like my own kind of personal take on it would be because Seth did his for the wrong reasons there was never really any going to be a chance where he comes mm-hmm. out of that alive, you know. But since Michael went into it with the intentions of like, I guess good intentions. I mean, it's just human nature to want to fit in, to want to like belong and have friends and stuff like that. Like him, he got a way out of it and stuff like that with these, with some of these rules and stuff like that, that we'll get into a little bit later on. Yeah. You you have, yeah, you have hubris being punished. Um, And I mean, you know, Michael gets punished, but in the way that a kid gets punished for going along with his friends, you know, like, right. in fact, there is quite literally, would you jump off a bridge with your friends? Well, he does. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, that's entirely, entirely um, true on that one and everything. And I I listened to this one um, podcast where they were talking about that particular scene being a like metaphor for America's youth in the 80s mm-hmm. and going off the tracks and stuff like that. And, you know, just with obviously like with the way that um, the America of the 50s had a, was evolving into something else in the 80s, I, I could complete I could completely see that um, particular mm-hmm. like metaphor and stuff like that for sure. Yeah, definitely. My dad has asked me that many times, like if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do the same? And like, of course, the yep. answer is no. But like, right. realistically, like, yeah, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> and and you can even and you can even say that while Seth was fully aware of what you know the potential for the date, you know, he had already done experiments. Uh, you know, we talked about the baboon and everything else. He already done experiments. To see like what could potentially happen to a living being, um, so he knew the risks. Whereas Michael was kind of duped into becoming right. a vampire. Yeah, I made that in my notes too. Is that like he was kind of sort of tricked in in some way, shape, or form? Yeah. And I'm going to keep some of my comments about Star okay. for later for the that particular part of the question. Okay. But um, there is definitely some trickery there, and like it's it's almost like I I, I kind of feel that if he didn't fall for the maggots and worms like if maybe one of those like he maybe had been maybe like a little bit more hesitant to drink the um to drink the the blood and stuff but like once you know star kind of tried to warn him 
he was just like, nah, fuck it. You know, like, I'm sure you, you're the one that's wrong, blah, 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 blah. So yeah. there's definitely an element of trickery there, 100%. And, like, because he is, like, tricked and everything, it helps the audience – it helps the audience to kind of root for him to, to get back on track. Like it was a yeah. dude who was just like willingly, like so willingly to like join these vampire guys and maybe a harder self to, to the audience on trying to save him and bring him back. Mm-hmm. But from almost like the first time that um, Michael and David make eye contact, there is some type of like conflict in some way, shape or form. Like you're never really even selling me on the fact that they're, that they're even friends or would be friends, even if, even, even when they'd sort of accept them. So mm-hmm. um, because they did everything that way, it's easier for the audience to, to get behind him, to root for him, to want him not to end up a blood sucking death machine, you know? Mm-hmm. So definitely, man. So if Lucy has one job to do in the movie, what would her job be? You know, I, I'm kind of really not entirely sure. And I, I say that only because, again, you could almost consider her at various points the protagonist. Right. Um, which is just an interesting sort of feature of this movie or flaw. I don't know how, I don't know if it's a feature or flaw. Um, so I would, I guess I would say that she is, her sort of job or role is perhaps to be sort of the, um, you know, potential audience surrogate, um, you know, someone who is sort of uh, kind of, not, not an audience surrogate, that would be the best way to put it in this case, um, the stand-in for sort of normal society. Like, she's the one who has to go find the job. She's the one who has to have, like, most of the responsibilities. And she's kind of only on the fringes of what's going on. Like, when um, uh, Max's dog, Thorn, attacks her, is really, like, the first time that she's sort of involved in like the main story of the movie so she kind of is you could kind of see her as sort of being just like the regular the regular person regular society at large basically and i this is one of those things that is just so funny to me diane weiss has been playing moms i think forever and now it's like grandmothers but like like i i think she was born at like age 40 like that's how old she was when she was born and they're just like well clearly you have to cast her as a mother she looks like a mother yeah she did she win the academy award for playing a mom in that hannah with her sister's movie because she won the supporting actress oscar it almost seems like that would be some I, if it's a movie called hannah and her sister she's yeah she won she's won that, two so. oscars and that was that was her first i believe Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Like I, she's definitely born to like play that mom and everything. And yeah, I, you know, I see what you're saying here about her being like, you know, some type of like perspective of like the real world and everything. That's actually what I had is she's like our grounded in reality type character. She's the only one that's really working to like hold the family together, almost kind of like a, uh, a theme reinforcer to a certain degree, you know, mm-hmm. like if the, if the, if the overall theme of the movie is family, which I, I 100% believe that it is, she would be the person that is like the, um, just trying to hold everything together, not necessarily trying to, um, not necessarily trying to like, um, like really like she's not trying to like accelerate like a new, a new trip into a nuclear family. She's just having dates with Sam and everything or Max with Max. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, she's expressed like, we don't even really know like if she's really like in love with the guy or not, but she's the one that is trying to, you know, not just keep her family together, but also 
to maybe at some point in time have the standard like nuclear family where there's a, a mom and a dad and kids and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, I guess there's a third movie happening with, with Lucy <laughs> and whatever the hell's going on with her. Um, yeah, like there's, I think that's the best way to put it. She's the most grounded and she's the one who has to kind of be the person who is, exists in reality in, in this family because of the Emersons, you have Sam and Michael off on their vampire trip. You have Grandpa who exists in a different reality altogether, um, which is fine, totally fine. So someone has to be like a normal person in this family. Right, exactly. And like she, for you know, she adds that like the, the straight person kind of element to the story in this family of, uh, you know, the, the funny kind of pot smoking out there, what everybody thought everybody in California was grandfather, mm-hmm. it, like her kind of nerdy son and stuff. Yeah, I mean, definitely like, you know, this this kind of straight person in this in this. And that element of like that side of the story, the, the straight person and everything, yeah. for sure. So I'm going to take the, the lead on this question here. But it's like, how do you like the question is, how do you feel that Star and Laddie fit into the story? And let me take the lead on. Yeah, this go, one ahead. Because go I, ahead. I got I got to say. These two are you could have had the movie. You could have had the movie without Laddie 100 yes. percent. And you, you could have. <laughs> I like I don't want to say that you could have had the movie without Star and had it be good because I, I somewhere in here in the 80s we have to have a love interest for the 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 older of the two brothers like it's it's almost formulaic at that By point law, in time and it has to be Jamie Gertz um, <laughs> right. in the in the late 80s for sure yeah exactly that's 100% right and so like so but even for her being this love interest she has like next to like no lines any time that she really could have impacted the story would have been the 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 drinking of the wine um situation which mm-hmm. you, she basically we just kind of like you know we're going to brush that whole thing aside and then there's the whole scene where like um they're getting ready to have sex and it's just like oh i, I just can't there's information that I, I just like can't tell you and stuff and i keep going back to the the conversation that we had when we were watching um i think it was the last jedi when we were talking about that and just how like a character has this information and just for they're just not telling somebody you know and however that information would have been very very vital yep. to michael at that particular point in time mm-hmm. so she comes off as um, as definitely a little one note. Um, would probably be one of the most stocky characters in the uh, in the, the movie. You know, like the the vampire the vampire gang. Like I don't really need anybody else outside of D- David to have that much of a personality. You know, we we get it with those guys. Like, and the, there's no way in hell we'd even be able to flesh out any one of those guys and still like you know kind of have a 90 minute movie here. Mm. So she, to me, comes off even like more stocky because I, you know, I, I kind of like wanted like a, a little bit of something out of her. And I for the longest time, I was under the impression that she was Laddie's mother. But I don't even think she is like I think Laddie is just some kid that they decided to turn. And that whole thing could have been left out of the movie entirely because you're really just looking you're the whole kid. The kid seems to be in the movie for like two reasons, the shot of him on the milk carton and that big scare with him where he's somehow like a half vampire with the teeth and yeah. all the shit coming out of the bed and stuff. So yeah. 
where they where they fit in the story is just fitting in the story is is just like props almost you know like you you could have had laddie out of the movie entirely i i think it maybe would have been better star could have had a had way more to do she could have way more agency way more lines but they just decided to opt with like the very pretty 80s jamie's curse face yeah so you're hitting all the things dead on here uh here's here's what i literally have as like my lead bullet point um it's so it's how do you feel star and laddie fit in the story and my lead bullet point is they really don't um because they just don't laddie who cares <laughs> like it it, right. is, it is an inconsequential character and you're right it, it feels like it's there's like some he was there for some shock value basically mm-hmm. like the the couple of scenes some shock value maybe to give you an insight into like the fact that like these vampires are like tur- you know try to turn like an eight year old or seven year old right. however old he is um so like that's you know kind of fucking depraved and weird and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie what what, what we do in the shadows does it better uh, with a vampire baby but um <laughs> so like I'm always happy to see Jamie Gertz in something. Um, she, I've had a crush on Jamie Gertz for like 30 years. Like, right. It's never going away. So whenever I see Jamie Gertz in anything, I'm just like, oh, fantastic. Jamie Gertz is here. Um, but like, I also have down here that she's like an object. She's not a character in this movie. She is an object. And it takes, what is it, an hour and 10 minutes before we find that like she was, she was the one that they wanted yeah. to turn. Um, right. And that Michael was going to be the sacrifice. So I yeah. mean, it takes a long time. Yeah, that's a long time for her to to even give her that. You know, like it just makes me wonder, like if there, if somebody in the writing process was just like, hey, you know, we really have this object character with a uh, Jamie Gertz here. What could we possibly do to give her something? And then somebody suggested, okay, let's just give her like one or two lines, an hour or so into the movie, and th- maybe that'll be her like actual purpose and stuff. But mm-hmm. we don't even really get that because like. Well, if she would have changed Michael, so what would have happened then? Would she have gone on to be with David? Was she a love interest of David? Was she just the um, the the female vampire that they were going to have to maybe start recruiting women like into the the into the the vampire lifestyle? I I don't really I don't really get it beyond her being beyond her being hot and that whole thing where you know she was a, she's a half vampire too, even though she never. It just shows fangs or the eyes or anything like that. Yeah, it, it's and it's one of those things you could almost understand if this was like Jamie Gertz's, you know, like one of her first or second movies or something. She has she at this point already has several years of of TV shows at like starring roles in TV shows mm-hmm. um, at this point in time. So like she is not new to Hollywood at all, and it feels like they really. They really did her a disservice by how much they minimized her in this story. They really did. Like they just, they would have did a disservice to any actress, whether it was their first role or tenth role or something right. like that. But the fact that this was already an established Hollywood personality to to do it like this, like um, I'll tell you, that is one thing that definitely wouldn't happen today. <laughs> oh no chance! <laughs> not a not a fucking chance on on that one. And like the the laddie thing, just. My God, man, just you, you could have done it could have been something else in terms of shock value. To, I mean, it literally could have been anything else other than the kid coming out of the bed. It could have been another vampire. It could have been 
maybe letting Alex Winter live and we see him as a sort of, you know, half dead with like a stake kind of hanging out of him kind of vampire thing. Like there could have been anything else other than that child just coming out of the bed and being crazy for 30 seconds. If, if you really wanted to, oh yeah, I know. If you really wanted to like do something fun, just go ahead and cut Laddie out. doesn't matter. Um, why, why wouldn't you make Jamie Gertz the head vampire? Right. Yeah. That actually would have done a lot of things as far as turning the the stereotypical vampire stuff on his head. Like a Mm -hmm. female vampire being in charge of everything, that would have been awesome, actually. And maybe that was a little bit too much for the 80s. And we're like, I don't know if we can have showing women in places of power like that. But that would, I thought, would have been a much better, given her a lot more to do in the movie, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But whatever. It is what it is. Um, But like you said, if this... Any sort of modern remake of this movie does not make that mistake, especially especially with someone who is already well established. They wouldn't let them go to man, woman, or otherwise, they wouldn't let them go to waste. Right, exactly, dude, for sure. So in terms of the Frog Brothers, how would you rate Edgar and Alan Frog in terms of their performance as vampire hunters? I, I really, really enjoy the Frog Brothers. Um, and it's one of those things that, like, man, like, I... I I don't want to get too far into a Corey Feldman thought here, but we probably will. Um, Corey Feldman is a fucking great kid actor. Like, a really great kid actor. I really enjoy when Corey Feldman, uh, young Corey Feldman, pops up in something like this. Um, he's just fun. He's very charismatic and very just such a natural actor. Um, mm-hmm. I I want the Frog... I want the movie that the Frog Brothers exist in. Like this horror comedy that they're currently in while this other movie's going on. Cause I think, I think they're they're I mean, I guess we do get sequels, which we can talk about that are terrible. Um, but like there is a, there is an, there's a probably a really funny kid comedy that stars the frog brothers. And I think it would be pretty, I think it'd be pretty fucking great if, if it was just them. Yeah. I gotta tell you, I absolutely love the shit out of them. And I've loved the shit out of the Frog Brothers ever since I watched this movie, mm-hmm. especially as a kid too. Like having two like badass kids when you're a kid to kind of watch on movies that just, I don't know, maybe you kind of feel like a badass in a six degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of way. Yep. And like on top of them being just badasses in general, like no fucking fear, these kids going into the vampire cave like like they own the fucking place and like you know going in and actually killing one of the vampires i just thought was like was just like balls that i would never ever have as a kid and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and then on top of like this unusual like charisma that they do have because it's not like it's not like he's a charmer in like in like the sense that Ryan Gosling is where it's just like, you know, you could walk up to somebody I'm already throwing a bra at them. You know, it's not like that Mm -hmm. kind of charisma, but there is just something entirely likable about these two kids that are so just hell bent on vampire killing. Like it's, it's kind of almost like cute in a way that like, if I were to be like a vamp, like I'm Adam Chmielewski vampire hunter as a kid. And I'm walking around the house with like, stakes on my back yes. and stuff like that you know it, it kind of has this like relatability for me and i i just thought that they were awesome like i well i where i know we're going to be talking about the frog brothers a little bit later on in the reboot section at least i know i will but um just know that i could easily have followed them around into other movies other adventures like i i'm kind of sort of surprised that with Corey feldman being this popular at the time and the the, the Corey's 
that they didn't have some kind of subsequent frog brothers adventure like almost right away after this movie but um i i personally thought that they were one of the most enjoyable moments of the characters in the film and also like if we're talking about just like stakes and motivations and everything like they got it all yeah and they 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 give it to the audience by doing so much less work than than the writers did with all of the other characters to bring us the same motivation and stakes. Mm-hmm. Yes, they they are they are the most complete characters in in this movie. They don't yes. really they don't you know and it, on, this is on purpose. They're, they don't arc on purpose. Um, they don't really have much of an arc to you know. Obviously, they go from um, you know they go from you know just sort of vampire um, gurus to actually like killing, but they don't like. It's not like it's a leap for their characters. It's just that, like, of course, they're they're the ones who have to kill some vampires because they're the vampire experts. They are the most complete characters in this movie. I know, like, it's just insane to think that in a movie that stars Kiefer Sutherland as Jason Patrick, Edward Herman, Diane Weiss, the Academy Award winner, Corey Feldman is a more complete character than all those people in the movie. I know, it's, I know, it's nuts. It really is very nutty, um, but. It is what it is. And I'm telling you, man, like, I I feel... I Corey Feldman doesn't do himself any favors now, like, in terms of, like, kind of how eccentric he is. But, right. like, I believe Corey Feldman. When he talks about all the sexual abuse stuff and the things that happened to him and Corey Haim, I 100% believe it. He's just... When we talked about how, like, Metallica was the face of the lawsuit against Napster and like right. those downloading music services, like they have a point. It's just like the wrong messenger um, mm-hmm. for that particular message. And because of how wildly eccentric Corey Feldman is now, he's almost the wrong messenger for, you know, as like the face of sexual abuse in Hollywood. Cause I believe him 1000%. I mean, oh. if, if Brendan Fraser can be sexually harassed as an adult, imagine what they're doing to kids in Hollywood. I know. Oh my God. Yeah. Like he, I could believe every fucking story that that guy has. And I mean, he went through the eighties when like excess and Hollywood excess and all that stuff was like, was, was super high, you know? And I mean, it was going on in the other decades, I'm sure. But like, it just seems like the eighties and the connotations that come with the eighties that it would be even more crazy and extreme to like what he had gone through and everything. And you're right. Like in terms of some of his eccentricities and all that as a modern celebrity, like, I remember when I went to um, I went to, I covered an event for Nerdbot at the the Chinese Theater and it was Stanley's like it was it was like this almost like memorial service that they had for him and stuff like all these celebrities when yeah. made a couple of spe- I didn't go like inside the venue I had to do the the red carpet coverage and like you saw these like people like RZA was like a great this is like a great comparison here so like RZA. When he goes into the theater, he gets out of his car, he stops for one photograph, and then goes immediately into the theater with his son. Like, Corey Feldman and Flava Flav and all those guys, like, just some of these, like, almost like VH1 celebrities, like, they hit, like, every single news person, anybody with a microphone, anybody with a camera that would, Mm -hmm. like, talk to him. So, like, just in terms of, like, the level of celebrity... Like he's kind of got this, like clinging on. He's definitely like clinging on to the the fame of his youth and everything. But he was a little bit more 
like kind of flashy and in your face, like giving the camera something to like photograph and he was like moving around in weird ways and seemed to have a little bit more energy than just about everybody else who was there. So he's like, because of this and because of just like what I was able to personally like observe with my eyes, you're right. There may be a, a better candidate to be the the face of that in terms of like making that message, like spreading that message and all that. It's not that he's unbelievable. It's just that the like I believe him, but like maybe people on a large scale would not believe him because of the way he is. Exactly. Exactly. He, he's just he's such a he is a character like he's a like a capital C character. Right, right now he's and like and not like it as an actor i mean like his the, the person who Corey feldman is right now is a character yes 100 percent. and speaking of capital c characters great segue right there would you consider the town of santa carla to be a character in the story yes or no and why i i say kind of so i guess i'm leaning towards yes in this and like it's very clear especially with like schumacher's sort of comments about the location in Santa Cruz where they filmed, um, you know, like that was sort of the thing that tied a lot of stuff together. Um, and like, you know, how much we see of like the boardwalk and the people on it. And there's enough scenes on it that sort of give you the, the you know, the feeling of like, of this location being, uh, being something a little extra, but like, there's so many interior shots of the house, the cave, there's sets like the bridge, that, that tree on the dunes. There's a lot of like this sort of, extra stuff like stuff that sort of locks you away from the location so it kind of takes away a little bit from like the santa carla being like a total character but i think Mm -hmm. i think more certainly more so than in the fly like where that could take place in any city but just happens to be toronto this this is definitely more what i would say is it it, i mean santa carla it's filmed in santa cruz so you're like 20 miles south of san jose um roughly speaking maybe a little more um I, it, it, so while it, it definitely you know it definitely has that California vibe, it just feels like a more generic 1980s. Even though this is NorCal more, but does it has a more generic 1980s SoCal feel to it? No, dude, I get what you're saying here all the way on this, and like I, I'm in the the camp of yes, definitely more of a character in the fly. That is for fucking sure. The town itself is spoken about in certain ways, especially with like the vampire problem, the whole murder capital, murder capital world yeah. thing, you know, and like that being just like with Santa Cruz in the the seventies where they had all these murder murders, Ser- serial killers. They're there like two serial, serial killers, killers. Yeah, yeah. It was like John Lindsay Fraser, Herbert Mullen, and Edmund Kemper was actually one of the. That's um, right. Yep. Was one of the serial killers up there. Yeah. So like, I think that. If you were alive back then, the the setting and some of the visuals might mean a little bit more to you Probably. because all that stuff was going around back then and everything. Like even like Jordan Peele's Us uses the exact same boardwalk in in, in mm-hmm. Us, uh, but it looks like completely different, you know, to today than oh, it did right, like yeah. back then and stuff like that by a long shot. So the um, the idea of it being a character like. It, it's there, but I, I feel that we don't like we don't meet enough people from there that are eccentric enough or specific enough to that landscape. Like, so we if we take like True Detective for example, which is my definitive example of an area being a character in a movie, mm-hmm. like 
throughout the course of the first season of true detective, like, you know, we meet all these, like, just like weird random people, whether it's the killer who is the guy mowing the, the grass and everything, yep. or some of the, um, like, a, what is it? It's a Shea Wiggum's character. And he's like the preacher at that, yep. you know, like kind of tented church that they go to. Yep. So the, because, there's, because, there's the trailer park prostitutes, the, yeah. um, the, yeah, there's all sorts of very, um, not eccentric, but like, very representative characters of yeah. what makes up the the you know the location. It, it, definitely, that's right. It's only, you look at Shea Wiggum's character and you're like, there is no way in hell that that guy preaches in the north in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> you know, it's like that guy is just specifically reserved for the south and even more so that area of Louisiana where the story takes place. And because we saw locations and we had relationship developed relationships with the characters that we're supposed to have relationships with it never really gave us enough time to even have a two or three minute scene with like sam and a really crazy like shop owner or a personality that would be extremely specific to that area you know like yeah i i would have thought that like and this would be just like a the most basic example that i could give is like and i don't know if this exists but i'm just kind of like going off of maybe this exists, but so like when all the serial killers were around, I'm sure there were new news crews and stuff like that. And people being interviewed, it just feels like they didn't take maybe like a, a more famous interview persona. Like maybe there was like a, a, a police officer who was really wrapped up in it or a, a local figure for, that was impacted by those murders that, you know, just looked like completely specific to Santa Cruz. They didn't have any like, not secondary, but like just almost like one-off characters that really gave us a sense that this is so specific to uh, Santa Clara, Santa Cruz, California. Mm-hmm. But I will, I will also say that um, I, I've never, I have not been to, to Santa Cruz. I've only been to San Francisco and Oakland and um, Monterey in terms of Northern California or Napa too. I've been to, to um, Sonoma and Napa County. I mean, Monterey, so, you're really close. So yeah, it's, it's close. Oh yeah. But like, um, I personally don't feel that like there's anything from back then that would have really like distinguished. It is that area. Like today we have tech people, we have, yeah, like hippies, you know, the, 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 the modern hippie, if you want to call it that, the, the hipster stuff, we have so many like personalities and everything that are assigned to Northern California via television shows and movies by today's standards. I don't necessarily know if we had the same thing back then. Like you could have probably easily told people that that was in Southern California and it could easily be believable too, you know, and some of it was shot in Southern California, but nothing of any, nothing of any notoriety in terms of the landscape. But if you do right. look at like the Santa Monica pier, like there's a roller coaster there. So you could, at night, it looks like the same roller coaster that was at the, uh, in the opening shot of mm-hmm. the lost boys. So there wasn't really, I don't think there was really enough at that time to maybe distinguish the, the, to distinguish Santa Carla in a way that would have made it the type of character that the area that the first season of true detective was shot in. Yep. Yep. I 100% completely agree with you there. Yeah. It's just, it's, uh, I were, I like, like you, I lean towards yes, but they could have, if you really wanted it to be, and I'm sure that they, they thought they were, you know, they thought they were going that direction. They should have sort of turned that dial up a little bit more. 
Yeah, they should have for fucking sure on that. I think it would have helped a little bit in terms of selling the atmosphere, especially just because like you have like the grandfather, like, yo, the Santa Clara, these vampires and oh, man, of all these corpses come from the ground, all this stuff. Like, you have these little comments like that. But the grandfather's personality isn't like distinct enough to be like, OK, that's a northern California grandfather like that grandfather could have been from anywhere in the country, just like an old hippie weed smoking grandfather. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha, dude. So let's move into The Vampires now. So this movie had a lot of rules and tropes and stuff like that spread throughout it, a lot of them. So let's identify three vampire movie traits or rules that the Lost Boys stayed true to. And we could just go back and forth on this one. All right, sure, sure, sure. There's actually a ton that they stayed true to in terms of like a lot of vampire legends. So um, I'm going to let's let's skip a couple. Let's just throw them out of the way. They drink mm-hmm. blood and they like sun and they don't like sunlight. Let's right. Very basic stuff there. Yeah. Basic stuff. <laughs> let's throw that out of the way. But one of the things that I was I, I was impressed I was impressed by and, you know, upon like upon like this viewing, it's one of those like kind of head slapping things. It's obvious if you're into vampire lore, which I actually am. Um, and that's the invitation to the home. Um, that vampires, in a lot of tales, vampires cannot come in unless you invite them in. Okay. I was wondering about that. I'm glad you brought that one up because that's one that um, I got to tell you, like, I thought that that was like, a new, I thought that was something that they just like invented for the movie or mm. something that was more of a recent thing. And when I watched the movie a long time ago, and even as a kid, I was just like, I, I had never heard of that before. Like, he's even, he's, as a kid, like, you, you get all the basics. Like, you get the, the night, the blood, all that kind of stuff. But I just, like, I never remembered the head vampire being, or the, the inviting of the home being a thing. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I think it, I think that stems more from, like, Victorian. So, like, um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the time of, like, Mary Shelley. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, that, that's when that time period. That's when you get the sort of um, the vampire needed to be inviting it needed to be invited in, and I also think it kind of ties up with a few more, um, more like occult superstitions, like that you know, like you know, demons can only enter through um, demons can only enter through like corners of like your house, um, yeah. you know, like they, there's other things you can ward them off with. So I think it all kind of goes back to that Victorian era. For these, some of these creatures, where that like that legend kind of gets steeped in, because obviously vampires well predate, um, you know, predate the, the the sort of the classic era, which we really want to. That's really what we're covering here, like these classic, the classic era of these monsters, and yeah. vampires predate that by quite a bit, by several hundred years. But what we see on film is mostly from like the Victorian era. Okay, I got you, dude, for sure. And like one of the ones I had, which I, like the garlic thing is 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 very basic. Like I remember vampires having a problem with garlic ever since like seeing cartoons of Dracula and stuff like on the Disney Channel, things like that, like little kids cartoons. But like this idea of the holy water being something that they stayed true to, I kind of like appre- I, I appreciated that, and it gave us um a, it gave us some really cool 
um, number one, some really cool things of just like them going into the church and all that stuff and interrupting the church to fill yes. up the guns with holy water, I thought was great. And um, I, Jess and I did the Warner Brothers studio tour when her parents were in town a couple weeks ago. That church is like on the, the studio lot and stuff like oh, in their really? fake neighborhood. Yeah, it's in their like fake neighborhood that they that they have built and everything. So like so that was pretty cool. I enjoyed that scene a whole lot. And then it also gave us some great payoff with the, the bathroom um, scene where we got garlic and holy water put together and stuff so mm-hmm. i i kind of i appreciated that not only did they use garlic but they took it one step farther with um with holy water yeah yeah and honestly i love that scene when they're in the church filling up the canteens and the squirt guns or whatever else and like on their way out Corey feldman looks at the priest and gives him like a big like fist pump like go yeah. jesus like a, yeah. it's, it's really funny yeah, and that, that's, like, some of the cool, like, fun stuff. I mean, just the fact that we got an Arm-Up Home Alone-style um, sequence in the movie, mm-hmm. I fucking loved I just, I loved the shit out of that. I'm a big fan of any arm montage in general, yep. but that was awesome that they, they applied this to vampires. I know, it was great. So, so what's, a, what's another one you had? Uh, so, also, I, I'm, I'm glad that they, um, I'm glad for... And we'll get it. We'll get into this a little. I'll probably dive a little bit farther into this. But I'm glad that they kept that they can fly. Um, yes. Something that it's it, like without being bats um, is what I should right. say. They, they they just can fly. Um, and that in, and that goes to like there's different legends with that. Whatever it doesn't really matter. But I'm glad that they can fly as people because like we get some great shots with it, and it does make the in a very simplistic way you could make the especially for the 1980s working on a an eight million dollar budget you can make it their approach feel ominous and interesting just by having overhead shots. So yeah. I like that they kept that they can fly and it made, it definitely made that part of the movie much more interesting. Yeah. Flight was one of the ones that I had too. Okay. And like, it depends, like it's interesting because you're right. There were no bats and the bat thing seems to like the bat thing kind of seems to vary depending on like whatever vampire story you're telling, like mm-hmm. in shadows and what we do in the shadows they turn into bats, but there have been like an overabundance of vampire movies where they just fly like in true blood. Like the guys just after a certain point in time can levitate off the ground. Like the, it's not something you get as a younger vampire, but as you get older, you could develop the ability to fly. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the flight thing, I really appreciated that they kept that in there because it really did give us a bunch of fucking cool over. It gave us cool overhead shots in general, but it also like until there's the big reveal as to like what is actually happening, it at least gave the director the ability to mask the vampiric threats. And like we don't really know what's going on. It's just something coming out of the right, sky. Right. Um, harassing and going after killing like the security guard, that big like, you know, Jack Ted Cruz face dude and stuff. So um, that I thought was really cool about them keeping flight in the movie. So what is your last one? Uh, this is what I really love that doesn't get enough exploration except for like in more classic, like in really more of the classical uh, Victorian era vampire stuff. But the the animal familiars that um, Max has a dog that protects him. And that's mm-hmm. very much an old school kind of um, uh, Dracula type of um, era sort of piece of the legend that obviously we got human familiars like Renfield, like being like the most famous of like the human familiars for vampires, but a lot of prior to people, they would have there would have been animals that would have protected them. Hellhounds, cats, things like that would have been sort of their protectors. 
Yes, definitely. This is, believe it or not, this is one that I had to use. Oh, okay. the familiars and everything like that. Cause you're right. We did not have any human ones, which, you know, a common trope of the, um, the vampire genre is to have your, your Renfield and stuff. And in true blood, they have God only knows how many like familiars and right. people that are in relationships with vampires, all that kind of stuff. So for them to, um, really like kind of take it back to something that, um, you know, was more common in in a different era of vampires. I actually like I respected that a lot, big time. And the fact that um it was done through like Thorn, just like the the big awesome white dog and stuff, and it was referenced in the comic as the Hounds of Hell. Mm-hmm. That was some shit that like I really really appreciate. And you had to have some type of thing with the familiars. Like I felt it had to be in there in some way. And doing it via a person, if you want to talk about like a character, that's just a stock character, whatever they were going to do with a familiar would have been just another caricature stock, nothing one note character. Right. Exactly. It's yeah, exactly. I'm glad they issued an actual person being their servant and just went with the dog. It just, it works so much better. Yeah, it it really did. I thought it made a nice, cool, twist to it that um at that point in time in the 80s could easily feel very fresh mm-hmm. just because of the audience's association with human familiars and everything yeah so what are three ways that the lost boys took these vampire movie traits or rules that we saw in the previous years and did something new with them so let's 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 start with the most the biggest and most obvious one their method of turning someone into a vampire is nothing that i've ever seen before Never seen anything like that before in my life either. That's number one on my list. I thought that was very, very unique. And um, I felt that if they did it any other way, you really wouldn't have, you wouldn't have much of a story if he just like got bit in the neck and then all of a sudden was, became a vampire. Like Sam would have no goal at that point in time because there'd be really no way for him to come back from that. Right. And there are like there are some like legends like I, actually I think take the back I think it, even in True Blood that's how like you drink your new master's blood to sort of and then you get you buried do. to sort of like yep. finish it off but yep. you still have to be bitten essentially you have to be killed first to become right. a vampire and Michael is not killed like he is just just drinking the blood just turns you into at least like ha- half into a vampire so right. you could even actually even say this is maybe at least one of the few, one of the very few vampire sort of, you know, ideas wherein you don't even have to die to become a vampire. Right. That's right. You could just basically drink some of this and do your, your transition, just follow the rules and everything. Like, yeah, yeah. that's, that was one of mine. That was by far and away the most noticeable one. I've never seen anything like what they've done here in the lost boys. And I don't even think I've ever seen anything done since to, to be honest with you. So the fact that they decided to go with this, like was, was pretty cool and really like unique and something definitely different. And it really, it served the story really, really well and added a lot more weight to it than him just turning into a vampire getting bit in the neck and stuff. Like yeah. That. Yeah, exactly. So my, my, my second one, um, cause we both had that yeah, one. Like, yeah, I don't know if you had this too, and I could probably be wrong on this one, but like the idea of the half vampire seemed relatively new to me in this particular um, movie. Like, I, I don't think I've, I had ever seen that before. I know that in interview with a vampire like brad pitt is trying to like not kill people for a certain point in time he's just Mm -hmm. like doing animals and everything but i don't remember if like him if he would have like just 
like the animals be, being some kind of like dividing line. Like, okay, if I just do animals, I stay, but he was a vampire just killing animals and stuff. So I, I think this idea of the half vampire seemed relatively new to me. Yeah. I think, um, I, I agree with you that there's, there's definitely, um, uh, this is definitely a new take on sort of like the, your transition to a vampire. Um, I know that like in some, in some legend, you know, in some stories and some legends, like if you don't, complete the process you just like die like a really awful death um so there's like sort of that but not like not like that you just sort of stay this sort of you know whatever jamie gertz and michael are um or jason patrick are like they're clearly vampiric but not they can still go out during the day they they still you know what i mean they still have some like yeah. they still have much more human traits i you're right i don't i don't recall ever seeing that before um, I think the closest to um, to this is in some iterations Renfield, and I th- I feel like in this is it, oh, this plays across two different vampire movies where Renfield's a character. Um, in one, like he is he is definitely very I mean he's obviously like sort of you know hypnotized into serving Dracula anyway, but in one he does like he does like he's almost vampiric and that like he's eating bugs and rats and things like that mm-hmm. um and in a and i think actually take the i've said that wrong in both iterations he's doing this but one's like for comedic effect one's the leslie nielsen um vampire yeah. movie that i can't think of right now dracula and dead loving it oh, yeah. yes dracula dead and loving it where like peter mcnichols running around like eating flies and shit um and it's pretty hysterical but there is another iteration where, like, the Redfield character is, like, he's, like, kind of like a monster himself, but not quite a vampire. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, like, this one this one just seemed very new to me. Like, I, even, like, after watching it, I, I can't remember this idea of, like, the half-vampire, full-vampire thing. Like, there's, mm-hmm. there's definitely, like, a process that has to be done. Like, there's always some kind of process that solidifies you as a vampire but i just i can't ever remember this solidification process having an out it seemed like once you opt for the vampire life you're pretty much in that no matter what yeah yeah exactly and you know there's there's got to be a way out for our hero basically right ex- exactly exactly so what's another one that you had in this uh, in this question just that they're um you know it, it depending like Vampires go out in sunlight, they burn, like, that's, okay, great. But, like, the fact that they kind of all have different deaths um, yeah. when they're not being, you know, when they're not being pulled out of the sunlight and ca- you know, catching fire. And, you know, the, the Frog Brothers kind of detail it as much that, like, they explode, they, you know, some of them, Kiefer Sutherland just dies. And, like, nothing right. in particular. He kind of, he actually almost reverts to a human is, like, really what it looks like when he dies. That's um, right. Uh, but you get, um, you know, you get the one in the bathtub where, like, everything explodes, which is definitely very fun. Um, and then, you know, when, when they do eventually kill Max, like, it's like a fucking nuclear weapon goes off in their house. (laughs) Um, so like, there's definitely like, there's, that was just kind of a fun little bit. I know that was just, I'm sure that wasn't like any particular legend that was just like, Hey, we got to kill these things differently, you know, just to Mm -hmm. have some like fun in this movie. And that's basically what that was. And it was great. 
Oh yeah, dude, that, that was some of the most fun that we got to have in the movie for sure was all the, the vampire deaths and stuff like that at the end. Yeah, dude, I totally hear what you're saying on that for fucking sure. Like I, um, I, I don't really like remember a lot. I mean, like ever since we've had the lost boys, there's been an overabundance of crazy vampire deaths and stuff like that. But in the lost boys, it seemed like we had, if there was a way to kill them or to give them harm, it, it was inflicted upon the vampires in some way, shape or form, everything mm-hmm. from the stakes to uh, the, the electrical shocks, yep. um, all that kind of stuff. Impaling and the, even the giant stake that goes through max at the end, it's like huge, almost like railwood, uh, railroad wood board going. Yeah, it was, um, it was from when grandpa was fixing the fence. It was a that's right. fence post. Yeah. Big fence post. That, that, that's right. Yeah. So like all that stuff was a, was a shit ton of fun on that. And um, the last one that I had in this, which I know has been explored a lot since like, so obviously the, the idea of this like head vampire is, is nothing new. Like there's always some type of head vampire, whether they call him the head vampire or not, but giving him this, the giving him that little like kind of clause in this contract where you know, if you kill him, half vampires go back to normal. Like, I, I don't really know if, if they would have killed him. Like, full vampires would have died. But there was some type of weight to the head vampire that, to the for the Lost Boys, seemed relatively fresh to me. And, like, mm. also just, like, having this the head vampire just kind of introducing him the way that they did, I, I just, I thought that was really fresh. Like, I couldn't remember any movies, like, growing up that I saw that, um, where like that where there was just like a head vampire out of nowhere I, it seems like it's been done uh, since a whole bunch of times like there's some type of hierarchy in the in the vampire world but the idea of having this head vampire and then something happening to him can affect these half vampires to me seemed really like a fresh idea i i do think that's a little bit more of a new intervention i th- i do think that but it probably stems from the idea that, again, just to go back to Renfield, that like in various iterations, when Dracula gets killed, he's sort of mentally freed from the, you know, the hypnotist, the hypnotism, the suggest, whatever the, the spell that's been cast over him. And that right. the various, the various, be they human or animal familiars, are sort of released from, you know, their whatever spell they're under when when their master dies basically so probably stems from that but like the way this very particular version of this definitely is something that was very would have been very new in 1987 yeah like you're you're right about that like as soon as like dracula dies in some of the other movies you're right anybody that has this hypnotist kind of thing you're right they're they're freed in some way shape or form you know there's always like a shot of them sort of like kind of like coming out of it and stuff you know like there's like oh jesus christ and then they eat regular food or realize the situation that they're in like almost like having no idea that they were in the situation that they were in in general it's like all this blood everywhere or something Mm -hmm. so yeah you're right that that's that's a really really good point on that did you have another um another one for this question yeah do you have one more real quick one here that Kind of, this is something that that they. I wish they would have explored a little bit more. That would have kind of helped them. That would have helped the vampires blend in a little bit more. Um, but they, you know, they, I think they do enough. But I, I could have made with a little bit more of this. And that's they really enjoy human pursuits. Like they hang out in the boardwalk and just fuck around. They, you know, they they go cause trouble places. They they're one of their big thrills is riding motorbikes around. Um, you know, they like to eat food. I mean, like when. 
that scene where they're where they're you know where they're Michael with the they're in the cave with Michael and they bring him the Chinese food. They didn't just bring him Chinese food. Everyone is eating Chinese food. Right. Exactly. Everyone. So yeah. there's I think like especially the the more modern iteration of, of the vampire story. Like certainly the vampires like enjoy sex. Like that's always been like one of the big ones. But like mm-hmm. there's really sort of a there's really sort of a rejection of general human society from from the vampire like in most vampire stories they don't really want to associate with us because we're food right Right. so like you know other than like you know hypnotizing raping us and then eating us they don't really care otherwise to like essentially do human things but in this case they do yeah that's right these are like some of the most human vampires we probably saw on on the screen leading up until this point in time you know they were very very human and everything like had even like had the, the the motorcycle stuff, like even just going to like a boardwalk and like, you know, you're not seeing them like playing video games and stuff, but it's clearly obvious that they're hanging out there and being around people, you know, yeah. they're even, even, even in the beginning, like Kiefer's trying to like, uh, kind of like pick up one of them and stuff. Maybe throws like a, like a sexy eye in the, in the direction of a, a woman who's on the boardwalk, mm-hmm. you know, whether she was going to be food or whether he was going to hook up with her, like, you know, who, who the hell knows on that, but at least like from that one look and before you realize that these people are vampires, like, you know, it, it looks like this guy's just going around trying to like pick up women and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In a very, very blonde mulleted Kiefer Sutherland sort of way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so is there anything unique to you about the costume and or makeup design for the vampires in the film? Honestly, not really. Like, it does it does feel like there's a bunch of callbacks to other earlier vampire movies. Like, like Fright Night, you get the eyes and stuff that, that are kind of familiar. Um, same right. with, like, same with like the, the way the vampire looks in Salem's Lot, which is actually really freaky. Um, but, yeah, um, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, um, there's some, like, callbacks to that. There's obviously some callbacks to Nosferatu with, especially when we see, um, uh, we see uh, their feet as they're hanging upside down. They're, you know, they're, they're not bat feet, but they're more animalist, like talons almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so like they're, they're, they're nothing really super original. They just all feel like sort of callbacks to other vampire movies. Yeah. Like it's one of these things that, um, I, like I feel it would have like, obviously this is like totally eighties all the way, like their appearance, everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's totally eighties for sure. Mm-hmm. I feel that, um, it would, it would look more, unique if this was like if i was older in the 80s i think like because you know since the movies come out we've seen a lot of vampires like not necessarily look exactly like but we've seen vampires maybe opting for the trench coat instead of the cape or something you know there's been several parallels with some of the costuming choices but um, you're right. Like, there's there's definitely callbacks. You know, you you can get a, like it almost kind of looks like to a certain degree they are just modern versions of the classic like kind of vampire mm-hmm. personalities. But I, I just have this feeling that if I didn't have a, like twenty something years in between, or well longer than that now, probably like twenty five, almost pushing thirty, like where I saw the movie to now where I've just seen so many different kinds of vampires that I, I feel the look might strike me to be a little bit more original and unique. If, if I was going into the lost boys without watching some of the more modern, because in true blood, there's just, there's vampires in just about every way, shape or form. They dress in every 
possible way you can imagine. So like if you're talking about that, that vampire costuming, True Blood pretty much is the be all end all. They got it all there. So if I maybe would have as a, you know, being in my 30s, watching The Lost Boys in 1987, the looks and the makeup and the costuming might strike me to be a little bit more unique and original. Yeah, I mean, Fright Night and Fright Night and Salem's Lot all they precede um, uh, Lost Boys by a couple years. Um, yeah, I gotcha. I so you you would have had to have not seen them because like the Fright Night vampires, other than like the the mouth, they look very much like the, these vampires. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and I have not seen that either. So like you're right about that for sure. So which one of these vampires do you think had the best death? I mean, it's it's I can't remember the character's name, but the actor is Brooke McCarter. The one who dies in the tub full of holy water. Um, it's, oh. it's just fucking fantastic. Fucking fantastic. Yeah, that one is fucking awesome. I had Dwayne, the guy who died with the stereo. Yeah, totally, like, yeah, I, I remember, um, what's, what's crazy is, like, I remember as a kid and when Sam shoots him with the arrow and stuff. I remembered the whole, just, like, him laying dead and coming back to life. Like, I thought that was really fucking cool as a kid. It just seemed so nonchalant and everything. And it's amazing how, when watching it again, like I did a couple days ago, that scene still, like, hits the same way. You know, it's just like, God, like, he just comes back to life so cool. And then there's another arrow that shot that just results into a big all-time fucking stereo explosion, just easily one of the most, like, 1980s things ever. Like, you don't see a lot of people dying via electrocution in stereo anymore. And then Corey Haim topping off with, like, the death by rock and roll or whatever line. It's yeah, death could, by stereo. Death yeah. by stereo could not be more 80s than that than that death. Yeah, like, I remembered the phrase death by stereo, like, appearing on, I just remember it appearing, like, throughout my younger life. Maybe it was in the form of, like, stupid things at Spencer's Gifts or people saying it or MTV stuff. But, like, the phrase death by stereo I re- kind of resonated with me. I had seen that beyond the movie. Right, right, exactly. Um, I feel like there's a band, Death by Stereo. That's more there, recent, that, though, right? Yeah, yeah. There, I will guarantee you that there is a band called Death by Stereo. Yeah, if somebody yeah. hasn't named their band Death by Stereo, it's almost like a crime to whoever's band has not named that. <laughs> so let's move into the standouts now. So, um, what is your standout performance of the movie? I'm gonna give I'm gonna give it to Corey Feldman. Um, I think I think you can actually pick from several people here, um, but I'm going to yeah. give it to Corey Feldman, kind of being the most um, the most eccentric character that also has like kind of also like carrying a lot of the the weight of the exposition and sort of a lot of the action later on on his back, and he does a really mm-hmm. great job with it because again, Corey Feldman was a really great kid actor, really great. Yeah. He was fucking phenomenal. Like Mouth and Goonies. Like I remember mm-hmm. as a kid wanting to be Mouth and everything. Like you, you can't go wrong with Corey Feldman as a kid. Mm-hmm. I opted for Kiefer Sutherland. Like yep. for me being such a fan of 24, it is like, it's just kind of cool to go back and see Kiefer in these, like in these more antagonistic style roles, which I feel he was just like born to play. Like 24 is almost like, the exact opposite of like what Kiefer would have been doing. Like there's no way he would have gotten cast as Jack Bauer. If 24 was made in the eighties and stuff like Kiefer mm-hmm. just has this raw, awesome, bad guy, like vibe to him. That is just like when it is, when it's on and it's working, it is like, cannot be matched. And 
he has got to be one of the only dudes that like could pull off the mullet. And he had, he had the mullet look in, in some of the earlier 24 seasons too, and still somehow managed to pull it off. So mm-hmm. I got to give him prop for just a great man of a few words, performance, a commanding presence and a fucking hellified blonde mullet. He's, he's also got that great voice. That's very commanding. And he he got his dad's sunken in eyes, which right. always makes him look very menacing. Dude, totally agree with you on that. That first shot of him with the fangs is like fucking scary. Like that mm-hmm. is that is just like an iconic image right there. That that might easily be the most iconic image of the entire movie. And he just has that look. The voice, especially, you make such a good point on the voice. Like his voice is awesome. Like it's, his voice is badass. It's not it's not like too deep. I mean, you know, it's it's a very masculine voice, but it just has this very, um, like, it just has this sort of, like, I, I would call it, like, this, the same kind of effect of, like, a coach with, like, a really good voice who just, you know, doesn't really even have to yell, can just mm-hmm. say your name, and you're like, oh, shit, I fucked up. Coach, <laughs> right, exactly. coach saw me do something. Like, he has that kind of voice. Oh, he totally, totally fucking does, dude. That's a really good, really good point about that. Because I've had a couple coaches that didn't have that cool of a voice. And when I fucked up, believe me, I knew about it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what is your standout line of dialogue? All right, I'm going to perform it here real quick. One second. Michael. Michael gets said 114 times in this movie. <laughs> it gets said more than any other word in this movie. Michael. I believe it. I totally believe it. Between him chanting his name and just all the, the, the multiple times that Michael's name is chanted and how many fucking times Kiefer said it. Yeah, 114 actually seems like it's a low number, but I'm, I'm assuming that you found that online somewhere. And like, or did you keep track of it yourself? Because if you did, I'm I, not I, keeping I track, track of that myself. Okay. Absolutely not. But someone put a super cut online of all the Michaels. It is. It's a long cut. Of someone. Of, <laughs> it's mostly Kiefer Sutherland, but it, you know, you also get. Sam and um and Lucy saying it, but it's mostly Kiefer Sutherland. Just various quiet or loud Michaels, basically. Awesome. Awesome stuff there. And I'm gonna do my perform I'll do a performance of mine too, so give me a second here. It's like a blood sucking Brady bunch. Like all, these, <laughs> all these dumb like one liners of humor in there. Like that was one thing I had forgotten about um just in the, up until the most recent rewatch. He Feldman and everybody Feldman in particular, but there's a lot of them out there that just have some solid one liners. And like I was watching the the movie um, this past time around and like after Sam or Max gives his um, his big, you know, like what this was all about, my grand plan kind of speech. Like I was just thinking to myself, I'm like, yeah, like this is really like some fucked up Brady Bunch type thing. And then he delivers that line like almost immediately as I thought about it. And I was like, yeah, like that right there is another like just perfectly crafted for the eighties line. Cause I don't know if like, do you think is the Brady bunch still like a, a, a reasonable reference in a modern setting? I, I want to say you could probably think of something else, but as far as like that time period goes, the Brady bunch was like the defining example of like the, the, the non-nuclear family coming together. And stuff. Yeah. You're only, um, I want to say you're from like the, the TV finale. You're only like 15 or 16 years removed. Okay. Maybe less. No, it might even be less than that. But I think from in 1987, you would have only been like, you would have been like less than a decade removed from like those movies that they made. So they were still definitely like in, they're still definitely in the pop culture consciousness. 
Yeah, that's right. Jeez, I forgot all about the movies and stuff. Yeah, you're right. So like that is something that is totally in, in the pop culture consciousness. And whether it would still land today, I, I don't necessarily think it would land the same way. But um, for this particular point in time, I thought that line landed very, very nicely. Yeah. yeah. So w- what is um, the standout special effect you have? So we could just this is me like circling back to like the, you know, the simplicity of them flying. Um, just those overhead shots are so simple, but so effective. Um, and like the way that we kind of get to watch the way that we get to watch the, the people, um, you know, be it the security guard, be it later in the movie, um, Michael and Sam, you know, running away. Like we kind of get to like sort of watch it from their POV. And, and again, it's like, I mean, it's not even a special effect. It's just a, you know, probably, probably with the, um, with the security guard, I would assume that it was like a helicopter, but I would assume that the the one uh, uh, when the when the vampires are flying in, you know towards the house, I would assume that was like on a wire or something that was you know attached yeah. above the above them. So like I mean it's not even like a special effect. It's just a, 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 just a good a good way to sort of um, to, you know just a, a very clever way to sort of like give you the feeling of like bearing down on their you know on, on their targets. But also when they do sort of make it more into effect, like when they break into they rip the roof off the car. And they take mm-hmm. the the couple away. Um, like that's fucking awesome. Like yeah. the way it's like you just barely see them, so you know it's them. The way like the roof flies off into the darkness, it's just fucking awesome. Like it's it's one of those things where like the simplicity of the of the effect, the simplicity of the trick, is doing so much so much great work for the final product. Yeah, really, really did a good job of like creating this idea of a threat from above and everything like that. And like, not only creating the threat, but showing that like, like what started off as just kind of innocent footage floating above the ocean, leading up to the boardwalk that like, when you see these point of views, like just get ready. Cause some shit is about to go down, mm-hmm. you know, like once you kind of realize that, um, some this point of view from above is going on and attacking people. It really does like set. It really does set like a cool ass tone and like what they do with it in terms of the effects is really awesome for the eighties. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Mine is um, mine is the one like after the um after the one vampire whose name is escaping me too, the one with the, the garlic and the holy water and everything. After he dies all the crazy shit that just shoots out of the sinks and stuff like that. Like, I don't even, I don't even know how that would happen (laughs) in that situation, but it was just fucking awesome. Like there's, there's, there's going to be a, just a, there might be, I don't even know if there's any time where you could say like blood or red liquid shooting out of a sink in the walls. Like, I'm not going to find that awesome. Like I'm always going to find that cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's that, that is like a, whenever I watch any horror movie and there's a scene in a bathroom, I just assume that like, well, here, here it comes. The six are going <laughs> right. to back up with blood. There's going to be shit all over the walls. Let's go. Right. Um, and this was, you're right. This is one of those like, you're like, how does that happen exactly? Eh, who the fuck cares? It was awesome. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter at that point in time. Like it, the guy is dead and just, hey, this is what happens when they die. Water shoots everywhere. Sewage gets backed up. Who knows? Maybe some something clogged up the drains and it just happened like that. Doesn't matter. I fucking loved every goddamn second of that for fucking sure. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> So, as we always do with episodes um, where we talk about uh, older properties and everything, we do a little bit of discussion about a reboot. This time, we're not going to do any, like, nothing like what we did last time, nothing full pitch-wise, just maybe some kind of light ideas as to how a reboot would be handled. Mm-hmm. Um, I We mentioned that, um, you had mentioned earlier that there were sequels that were god-awful. I actually haven't seen any of the sequels. Have you watched them both? 
I I've seen the most. I, I guess I missed the middle one, but I'm sure I didn't miss anything. Um, really, <laughs> I saw the one from like 2010 or 2011. Um, okay. Lost Boys, the Thirst, I believe it's called. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right on that. Yeah, so I I have not seen any of them. Probably not going to uh, go back and watch any of them. But don't um, need to. If yeah, don't need to at all. So if um if this were to you know get rebooted in um in a modern setting. What do you think would be the better um, format, a television show or a feature film? You know, I think so much stuff gets made into TV, and I understand why. Like, just it, it just sort of makes sense to, like, Interview the Vampire makes sense as a TV show, right? Like, yeah. to go episodically as, as we're going to sort of unwind the past of this, um, you know, of this guy. We're going through this guy's lifetime. Like, that makes sense. Yeah. This, I think, would be best as just a movie. Um, cause I think most of the things that we, that we talked about that like we would do differently are pretty minor corrections. They're mm-hmm. just, you know, like, like if you're not going to do anything with the characters of Laddie and Star, then don't include them. Um, you know, or, or give them more to do, or, you know, like there are like sort of nips and tucks that you can do. Probably you would need to add a little bit more screen time to this, um, yeah. to sort of fill in a little bit more. But I feel like really like this is this isn't too far off from being a, this isn't too far off from being um, a pretty good sort of like base to start from that you don't have to add too much to just some dialogue, some more character motivations, a little more character development, um, cut a character. And then you would have a nice, you know, maybe right around an hour and 50 minute movie that would be very portable for, especially for streaming this thing. It feels like, if this movie came out now, this is a streaming movie, 1,000%. They do not put this in theaters, but whatever. It doesn't really matter. But I feel like the movie would be the right way to go. Gotcha, dude. I am I hear you on that. I agree with a lot of stuff that you said. I'm, I'm going the television route on mm-hmm. this one. Like, this is my this is my everything could be te- television thing, even though my um, yeah. I'm st- starting to feel differently about that, especially just because of how much television we have on television right now. It's a lot. But, um, it's a lot, yeah. And I do feel that um, this show could work in one of two directions. I'll, I'll kind of save the second one um, for when we get into the next okay. couple of questions. But um, this could either be a, a high school vampire kind of drama, which I know we've kind of dabbled into in Twilight, but they could do a very similar... Um, oh, Buffy. They could, <laughs> yeah, Buffy, like that kind of stuff too, yeah. So like this type of movie to me seems ripe to be put on a CW television show. Like it's, it seems like the CW might be the only network in the world that a movie or a, a TV show like this might exist. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see HBO picking it up, but um, I do see a television show being a cool way to, um, to get into that. And I will get into just like what I think would be a cool idea for a TV show as we get into the next couple of questions. So I got you. I got you. And I have, I actually have some thoughts on that too, that like if, if there was a, a TV reboot, how that could go as well. So, okay. I'm actually, now that I'm wondering about this, I'm wondering if we're thinking the same thing, but we'll get to that bridge when we come to it. So, um, but before, but with the exception of the vampires, what would be two elements from the movie that you would keep in the reboots? Um, so I would keep, I'm, I'm keeping the frog brothers. Like, they're staying. Yeah. They, they absolutely mm-hmm. have to stay. Um, I will say this. I'm I'm going to cheat a little bit here. Um, so let me get to this. The Frog Brothers for sure. And then I'm going to also keep the, the, the titular Lost Boys motivation to sort of like they want to grow their family. They're trying to increase their clan, basically, yeah. would be sort of the two things that I'm keeping. But these are also going to be the two things that I'm changing. But okay. we'll get into gotcha. that. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. Totally got you on that. I'm, I'm definitely keeping the frog brothers and everything. And for a reason that I will explain um, here in, in the next question. And then like, also like I do want to keep the setting the same. And with a television show, we could definitely have the time to make Santa Carla the character mm. in the show that it deserves. Gotcha. This is where we could go to a bunch of different locations. There could be episodic stuff, and like, which which will make more sense once I get into the next question. But there'll be episodic stuff where like we can meet different characters. Those characters can provide a goal for the episode, that kind of stuff. So I think gotcha. by keeping it in the same town and giving it a little more time we would be able to like really do the character of the town justice. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Then you could, yeah, you get a little bit more of the town as a character and you can kind of tap into the idea that there's all sorts of eccentric people that have, that wind up in Santa Carla for one reason or another. Definitely dude. So let's get into the change uh, question. What are two elements from the movie that you would change for your reboot? So like I said, this is the same, like I'm keeping the elements and I'm tweaking them is basically what I'm doing. So, like, the Lost Boys want to grow their family, but not just because Max wants Lucy. Like, that's, you know, that seems to be the end all there. Um, I would give it a little bit more um, weight in that Max has bigger plans about expanding his, you know, he owns a video store in Santa Carla. Great. Right, right. He has bigger plans beyond that, but he needs a human family to do his bidding. So, the Emersons in my reboot version would be more targets for the lost boys as familiars they wouldn't be okay they wouldn't want to turn them to vampires they just want to make them their slaves basically so they have people to do their bidding when they are asleep during the day oh that's good stuff dude definitely i could see that happening for sure i'd like that a lot and i know that there are it seems like there are storylines out there where there are an idea of somebody to do a vampire's bidding during the day. I am just really fucking struggling on putting a name to it, but that does seem sound something that would be really fucking cool and stuff and give you a little bit of some different insight as to what a, during the day of a vampire's life, they like what they need to be done during the day and the stuff that they can't do at night kind of thing. I guess. Yes. So yeah. cool. Very nice. What is, um, uh, let me, I'll just, I'll go with yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Or actually. Okay. So, um, with mine, um, this is the more simpler of the two. Um, cause I, I just, I'm safely assuming we're going to land somewhere in the same thing with the frog brother. So I'm keeping that for the next question okay. yeah. so, or the next answer. Um, so mine, I got to get rid of this like half vampire thing. I just think it's too, I think it's too confusing. And like in the TV show, like, you know, it could, especially the direction that I want to go with it. I just don't really think that there's like a place for the half vampire thing. Um, I don't really believe that audiences today would buy this. I think we've had enough vampire stuff over the course of the, of the last, you know, whatever, 30 something years, like 30, 35 through some years that um i think people have just kind of maybe moved beyond this and it would either be like an all or nothing type situation it just the half vampire thing while it works for this particular story i I don't think it would work for the story that that i'm trying to that i would be telling with my reboot and i just think that it's something that is it's not necessarily I think that the audience is a move beyond the idea of the half vampire is what I'm saying. I agree with you. And that's why I kicked it out too. Like (laughs) I, because it just, it, it would be, especially in a TV show that would be confusing for like, how long are you going to stay a half vampire? Um, And just, it feels more simplistic. Like you either are becoming one or you're not. And I went, you know, I went with the, 
they don't even want the Andersons to be vampires. They just want them to be slaves. Is right. what they want to simplify to you know to cut out that sort of middle ground. So we're very clear as to like what is. So it's very clear that like they're even though they are sort of in the family, they are not in the family. <laughs> like they are yeah. very much slaves to the family. And I I think you're right. That just cuts out like a layer of confusion. Yeah, and I'm gonna let me get in with this answer. My second one, really oh, quick. So I'll just kind of bring that whole thing full circle. The way I would do the another change that I would make is I would actually change the focus of the story, and I would want it to be where the Frog Brothers are like the main characters, and like I want it could be like just them as older guys and new vampires. Like the whole idea of the vampires show up in Santa Clara, and they could be out there killing them, investigating them, almost like in an episodic kind of way throughout the course of the show. Now the reason that I wanted to kick out the half vampire thing now just like i just i would kind of envision like how this whole thing would work in in a tv show and like kind of how like lame and when the hell are they ever going to get resolution on this what i'm about to say would be so in i feel that like if somebody wanted to have the half vampire thing in this tv show we would meet somebody in like episode one that the frog brothers like come across that they like it would have to be one of these things where it would actually go against the character of the frog brothers too, because they wanted to murder the shit out of Michael and almost didn't do it out of some kind of promise to Sam. So I feel that if this were a TV show, somebody else would have like a, somebody who's on the verge of becoming a vampire introduced in like the first episode. And like one of the frog brothers is like sentimental to them. So they kind of help them and nurture them and like Mm -hmm. are hunting for the head vampire and stuff. And you're no joke, dude you're only going to get two episodes or something out of that. Like there's going to be a certain point in time where the audience is just like, find the head vampire and kill this to move this story and to get rid of this and to move the story forward. And then it also like goes against the characters of the frog brothers where they would just feel sympathy for a random person who is a half vampire. Like I feel that if it could be the hottest person in the world and no matter what, like these frog brothers would still like kill the shit out of them. Like it wouldn't be anything to um, it wouldn't be anything for them to want to like nurture this person and stuff. And it, 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 in a way, it kind of feels like a almost like a certain like modern storytelling, cheap way of like creating conflict. So like it'll be like uh, Edgar loves the the person, but Alan hates them. And then there's conflict mm-hmm. with them in that way. It almost seems like. The whole thing is just way too formulaic, and I don't think that the audiences would 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 really think that that's cool in any way, shape, or form. So that's that was my other reason for just kicking it the fuck right out of there. I I yeah I got you. I agree with you. It it definitely. I mean, listen, the Frog Brothers wanted to kill Jamie Gertz, and right. <laughs> if horned up violent teenagers want to kill Jamie Gertz, then no one is safe. Right. That's exactly fucking right, dude. Yeah. When horny teenage dudes are wanting to kill hot people, hot women. Yeah. No one is safe in, in that regard. Way to put really good way to put that. Dude. So what is a, what's your other um, answer to this question? Oddly enough, we had a very similar idea that like the Frog Brothers, maybe not the main characters, but they're going to have a lot more um, to do in my in my version of this. And also like you, they'd be older. Like I'm thinking more like in their 40s or 50s. And yeah. um, I actually would sort of. This is something that, again, like, I think they just missed an opportunity here with these comics, probably because they didn't have enough time. I would make them sort of like, you know, um, same idea. Sam wanders into their comic book shop that they're running, and, um, you know, he 
he says he's not a big fan of like the vamp, you know, the you know the horror comics or whatever. But let's flip it. He is a big fan of the horror right. comics, and right away notices the Frog Brothers because in my version here, the Frog Brothers are like renowned comic book artists. And oh, nice! So like they've been publishing these horror, these vampire horror comics for years, and actually you could kind of well, I'll, I'll, I'll finish this thought off, then I'll get to the next thought. Um, so like they're like well known, so Sam would immediately recognize them. And like, holy shit, it's the Frog Brothers. And like, he would, you know, he would talk about all the issues he has. And like, then they would hint that like, hey, these aren't just like stories. These are like our real life adventures of killing vampires in Santa Carla and elsewhere in the world. So like, they're, autobi- they're autobiographical comic books, basically. And that would be kind of like yeah. the secret that they get into. And then you could also kind of, in a very 1980s way, if you wanted to sort of leave the door open for a sequel, you'd have like, you know, like you'd have all like the, the vampire horror comics and then, like, end of the movie, hey, you should check out our werewolf horror comics. Or, right. for, you know, whatever. Like, also yeah. hinting that, by the way, there's other shit out here that you don't you haven't even met yet. Dude, the, you could reboot the Dark Universe this exact same way. Exactly. <laughs> you start off with vampires and I mean, move on to other things, yeah. I mean, you, listen, we don't need to reboot the already perfect Dark Universe, but if we had to. <laughs> right, that, that's true. It's so perfect as it is. That's right. And yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a good way to like build a franchise to give a, the, the potential for a sequel and stuff right there to really like expand the world of the story. Definitely. Yeah, I I, I think um, as much as, you know, it'd be different if there were like kid actors that I liked as much as I like enjoyed young Corey Feldman. I think I think if you I think if you wanted to keep them as kid actors, this would be a gender flip and you'd mm-hmm. have like the Frog Brothers be like the Frog Sisters. Yeah, which I gotcha. you, you yeah. could totally do. Um, but uh, you know, like I think I think we both have the same idea. Like the Frog Brothers would be more interesting as adults. Yeah, definitely do. Like people that have spent their entire lives in that area have seen a lot of shit and everything. I mean, just there's a so much that you could do by having them be older and stuff. You know, there could even be like a. Uh, some sort of history that, that they have and stuff. We may actually learn like a little bit about them. Like maybe their parents were taken by vampires or something crazy like that. Maybe they mm-hmm. had to like kill one of their parents who was a vampire or something along those lines. So like by making them older, there's just, there's just so much more to, to draw from in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Fuck yeah, dude. Very, very nice. Well, that about the, that brings us to the end of the outline and everything. So, um, Dude, I had a really fucking great time with uh, Fright Fest this month and everything for sure. So uh, if there's unless you had anything else to add, dude, you could totally lead us on out of here. I, I just have one thing to add. I do so very much love the the way that they decided to end this movie with the grandfather with grandpa completely nonplussed by everything that's happened. He yep. just walks to his fridge, gets his beer, the, you know, the shelf that no one else is supposed to touch. Um, yep. he gets his beer and he just like, you know, just like, it's one of those things that sort of, it, it sort of puts a great bow on it and also opens it up a little bit more to more questions, which I, we've been, we've talked about this so many, I love when a, a film, any film ends with like answering some questions or leaving or giving us some new ones and how nonplussed he is when he just says, that's the one thing I've always hated about Santa Carla, all the damn vampires. And it's just yep. like, everyone's just like, wait, what the fuck? And it's. Mm-hmm such a perfect way to end a nice like the comedic pitch is like just right and like the way that like then boom like the door slams and the credits start so you're just kind of sitting there with it like oh shit like wait hold on a second love it i know right 
it, it kind of reminds me of like the last line that you had written for your 80s movie from last month and stuff like that. This kind of like in a way, like it, it's kind of humor, but it, it, it kind of asks some questions, too. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah, bro. Yeah, that's it. Other than that, like this was this was definitely fun to dive into the into the uh, into the monsters. Definitely fun to definitely fun to do a little bit more exploring t- uh, with the old Universal monsters. Like forgetting not just like how like I guess you can you can kind of understand fast forward a hundred years or you know, not a hundred but like eighty years. You can kind of understand like why Universal would want to do something with this IP that they have because that IP dominated early horror for like three decades. So yeah. like, of course they would want to like see if they could do something with this again. Of course. Right. Definitely dude. Yeah. It was a lot of fun taking the stroll through the, through monsters and stuff like that. Like there's so much there to talk about and everything. And it's these kinds of movies that we've been watching our entire lives and even still watch it to this day and stuff like that. And like, you know, we were more horror centric in our discussions, but monsters are just like every fucking where now, you know? And like, it's, it's really cool that, uh, you know, some of these IPs have sustained such longevity that just like the concept of the monster with technology, if it's done right, could be fucking awesome even still, you know, and the, the fact that like that I am still like is a, about to be 40 years old and 38, you know, just would have no problem going to see a monster movie in the theater or watching it at home. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that I'll probably take with me my entire life. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, all right. Um, that's it. That puts a wrap on this year's Fright Fest. Fright Fest 4. Uh, Monster Mash is now over. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening, downloading. I hope you had as much fun listening to this as we had making this. This was a fucking great. Our, 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 I love our, I love all of our theme months, but like between this, um, when we do when we do uh, movie May, like the, like this is my favorite one though. I love oh, yeah. horror movies. This is so fucking great. So I hope everyone has as much fun as we had making it. And uh, we will see you in November when we uh, we tackle some sports. Hell yeah. Um, upcoming all month long in November. Um, but uh, again, for now, Fright Fest is over. We will see you next time. See you next time, everyone. Thank you.